That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Fill her up. You're listening to the Gas Digital Network. Hello, wackos. Welcome to another episode of Without a Country. I am Corinne Fisher. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, Thanks. Welcome back. If you've been watching for a long time, as many of you are, very loyal viewership here at Without a Country. And uh, greetings if you are new. Thanks for joining us. Uh, This show, as a reminder, uh, looks at the top news stories of the week, but from the perspective of the right, the left, the center, um, and tries to find the truth somewhere in the middle. This is not an academia level show. This is a show for regular people, regular people. Maybe you went to college, maybe you didn't, but you don't use big words. This is, I am trying to make, um, especially, uh, liberal, uh, news and left leaning news, but really all news, uh, accessible to everyone. That's the point of the show. Just as a reminder, I feel like, uh, unfortunately many people, uh, are lean conservative on just because there's things available like Fox News that use smaller words. And I really think there needs to be more left leaning news news shows and sources that just use smaller words. Let's get people on our side no matter what level of education or reading comprehension level they have. I went to college. We all know I don't know big words. I prove that every week on the show. I've gotten pretty far in life without using big words. I'm believe me, I'm trying to use bigger words. If they just never really I don't know I only have so much space in my brain and I have a lot of ideas about making TV shows and stuff so the the, the words just aren't in there um, but I can convey what I need to convey uh, quite easily so I've honestly I've made a career out of it in fact um so uh, welcome to the show. We Last week, we started the show by talking about my Facebook getting hacked, or I thought I had avoided the hacking, but no, 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 Arshad, you are... You're crafty, okay? You somehow did it. Um, I know I I get updates of the names of the people logging into my account, which is how I know all the names. Um, it, the primary 
master of the hacking is Arshad, and you're oh you did you did a great job. I don't really know the point of the hacking though because they just are uploading. I mean, somewhat whimsical videos to my Corinne Fisher Facebook fan page. And I don't know what it is beyond that um, because I checked, you know, as far as like ad sales, there was no, nothing else that they, I don't know. You know, I don't want to speak because last week I said I didn't think they had anything uh, and then I spoke too soon. But right now they're just posting a, a series of whimsical videos. But some of you have messaged me panicked saying, Corinne, I don't know if you know this, but it seems like you've been hacked. Yes, I know. I, I never use Facebook because I'm under 65. So just if you're on there, enjoy the videos. And hopefully, I didn't like the one where the, the cat, I think it was a cat, uh, was getting chased by the bears. But other than that, honestly, all the videos have been fine inspirational even sometimes. So uh, enjoy that. Uh, we're going to get straight to an, an interview that was offered to me last week after we talked about uh, my party topic of the week, which was uh, euthanasia in veterinary schools. And I got an email um, from a, this is from a, a, a DMV candidate uh, at Washington State University who works for this nonprofit called Our Honor. And she recommended uh, the uh, veterinarian we are going to be interviewing today, who is uh, Dr. Crystal Heath. She is a California-based veterinarian, um, and she is doing a ton of interesting work and trying to spread the word about terminal labs in veterinary schools. Um, sh she created the nonprofit Our Honor, and she's leading a movement of veterinarians challenging uh, what she's called the corporate capture of veterinary medicine by industries like factory farming. I find this so interesting. And she is incredibly intelligent. But I, believe me, I told her about the show. I said, we're going to need we're going to need to really start at a base level since I just learned they were still using or using at all terminal labs in veterinary uh, schools last week. Uh, we're going to learn a little bit about what's happening what we can do as the public to have our voices be heard, and certainly what you can do if you are applying to veterinary school, how you can tell the school that you're not interested in euthanizing animals to learn your work. Uh, so welcome to the show, Dr. Crystal Heath. Hello. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. I'm so glad um, that someone from our honor reached out. Uh, I have a lot of specifically vet techs listen to this show, and I had no idea. And I was so flattered when I started talking a lot about animals, um, specifically on this show, Without a Country. And uh, the backstory is I own a baseball card store, and one of our regular customers used to be married to a veterinarian, and we were just shooting the shit for lack of a better phrase and he he revealed to me that about euthanasia uh on animals that are practiced on when you're in veterinary school and i, I there was something else to the story and i said we're gonna stop right there and this is gonna keep me up for the rest of the week and uh, so i started talking about it just to throw it out there that it's something that's happening and uh i'm so glad that you're here to shed some light on it in a you know uh, on a higher level. So can you tell us first um, a little bit more about yourself and how you got 
if there's a story that got you interested in this work specifically, or if you were just kind of upset by the practices you saw? Yeah, you know, I, I, I come from sort of an agriculture background. I, I don't know if you know 4-H, but I kind of grew yeah. up in 4-H goats and horses and uh, but was vice president of my 4-H club, but always really sympathetic to animal rights. We we got a lot of things about, we heard a lot of things about PETA and 4-H that was very negative, but I got my hands on some PETA material and I'm like, you know, they have a good point here. Yeah. And so I was very skeptical of things I was told about PETA and animal rights activists in general. Um, now I live in Berkeley, California. Um, I graduated UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine in 2012. I am a shelter veterinarian. That's like my day job. Um, but I started this nonprofit organization called Our Honor when I started talking about animal rights issues on veterinary uh, message boards. Mm -hmm. And then this pylon attack happened where people were were claiming that I was going to go undercover and secretly record people and all of these outrageous things. And just this huge pile on happened and I was kicked out of all of these veterinary Facebook groups. And people started reaching out to me and saying the same thing happened to me. Um, I don't feel like I can say what I really want to say without being ostracized by our profession. And I'm like, this, this was is fellow huge students or people who had already become veterinarians. Or this both. was me after veterinary school in 2020 it was really when I, this all kind of came to head and I started receiving all this backlash from the veterinary community for talking about animal rights and talking about animal issues. And that, and so I was, you know, an established veterinarian and had actually kind of gained some notoriety for my shelter work. And I had been on TV, um, but realized that this was a huge problem was kicked out of all these veterinary Facebook groups. Mm -hmm. Then um, we got these Freedom of Information Act documents showing that the industry had sent out this email about me saying that I was affiliated with radical animal rights organizations and that I was a threat to the profession. People should block me on social media. And I'm mm. like, wow, this is, this is nuts. Um, and I was friends with a journalist who was friends with Glenn Greenwald. It's giving, you know, Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, all of the yeah. things. Um, and Glenn Greenwald had me on his show to talk about the thing. And he wrote this wonderful article about these attacks um, by the agriculture industry on me and other people. And the rest is history. Our honor just kind of started taking off and becoming more of a thing. And we started talking to more vets about their issues. And some are brave enough to share their stories on our website. Most aren't. Um, but terminal surgeries always comes up. Students are concerned about it. Veterinarians point to it as this thing that they had to do in vet school that was so traumatizing. Yeah. And them to this day that they killed an animal like really betraying our oath. Right. And it's, it's really disturbing how we are conditioning veterinarians who should be out protecting animals and we're thinking of better systems to try to move away from using animals, but they're being indoctrinated into the system of animal exploitation. And they're being told, oh, you have to do this and given these faulty rationalizations. And then when students push back with legitimate science-based research saying, you know, there's a better way. This is consistent with um, our profession, even 
even consistent with animal experimentation, the idea of the three R's, reduce, refine experiments and replace experiments with animals, knowing that we, we can do better and we can teach students in a much better way, why are we still doing this? And students are still getting, you know, punished and receiving failing grades for wow. being conscientious objectors when it's like we have the first amendment free speech all of these things um and so this it just really needs to change and i think the biggest thing is that the public isn't aware and so now we need to make the public aware of this that veterinarians are having to do this and i think it's going to change rapidly once we get this information out there yeah that's an excellent point because i you know i am not I wouldn't call myself an animal rights activist, but I am someone who is more involved than the average person in animal rights. I recently even joined uh, the board of a nonprofit for a dog rescue. So like I'm involved. Uh, And this was, yeah, this was stunning news to me. I I just had absolutely no idea. And then a step further, what alarmed me even more was that I am someone who reads the news every week and specifically searches for animal-based articles because I don't think it's talked enough about. We have a segment on the show called Cutie's Corner, which has a whimsical name, but is usually uh, some pretty horrific story about animal abuse that I just haven't seen covered by major uh, media sources. And I I still was absolutely shocked that I hadn't once heard this mentioned um, in the many conversations I've had about animal welfare over the years. So that, yeah, the first kind of step is like, I just wanted to talk about it uh, immediately. And then the second thing is uh, you mentioned you were uh, kind of ostracized and kicked out of all these Facebook groups. Is the backlash due to ultimately like capitalism and the fact that people higher up are getting paid to do these terminal surgeries or like why are they so obsessed with doing them? It has to be a money reason. It's at the end of the day, it's pretty much always a money reason in America. Well, it's it's funny because is there any amount of money that you could pay you or me to do take part in this? Like, no. Well, I mean, no, but <laughs> that didn't that um, hasn't stopped and, a lot of other people. Yeah. No, but I think it is the type of people who are willing or who adopt this belief that you know we can use animals in how whatever way we want, and just the belief that veterinarians need to be tough and thick-skinned and not be so mushy and soft-hearted and compassionate. Right. And the idea if if you're a vet student and you're complaining about this, how are you going to handle euthanasia when you have to? Like, are you really are are you tough enough to be a veterinarian? And this was a That's philosophy. The approach. Okay. Early on, I mean, Dr. Bernard Rowland was a veterinary ethicist at um, Colorado State University, taught for many years and talked about these issues. And he wrote this book called Veterinary Ethics. And he talks about his conversations with his fellow professors who said, yeah, this the purpose of this horrible lab that we're going to do with these students to feed these cats milk and then have the students operate on the cats using only ketamine, which doesn't provide enough pain relief and anesthesia. So the cats are in pain is really to weed out the people who aren't tough enough for this. And just the idea that you, you have to kill a dog in order to be a good veterinarian. Um, And he also talks about this one student who they'd get dogs in the, in the olden days, we don't do this anymore, but they used to get dogs where they would perform multiple surgeries on them over a period of weeks before killing them. And one student 
took an anesthetized dog, beat on him with a sledgehammer, and then spent the rest of the semester repairing the damage that he did on this living dog. And that student received an A. And thankfully, like those multiple surgeries aren't done anymore. But the, what replaced them is, oh, now students practice on an animal and then kill them before they even are allowed to wake up. And many of these animals are healthy, could be adopted. Yeah. Um, and mostly we're talking pigs, sheep, cows, goats. Um, a few schools still do use dogs, though. Okay. Yeah, because it seems like if the only reason is to weed out who is not, quote, tough enough to be a veterinarian, it almost seems like it should be the other way around. Like it should be a test that if you are willing to kill one of the animals that you shouldn't receive your veterinarian's license. If it's, it reminds me of what is the uh, the judgment of Solomon in the Bible, like where the it's two infants, they come and for it's for a baby. And like, they're like, we'll cut the baby in half and split it. And the mom who's the actual mom of the baby is like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. And then that's how they know it was the real mother. I had to Google that real fast. That was just a Bible <laughs> story that my mom used to t- tell me at night that would scare me. Um, but it reminded me a lot of that. And I was like, even though, even if we're going by Bible logic, this is the wrong choice. And I, I rarely feel like the Bible is making the right choice. So that's very interesting. Hey there, responsible adults over the age of 21 living in states where Delta 8 is legal. It's that time again. It's our favorite ad. You probably know it by heart, guys. Do you want to get high? Do you want to get really high? Do you want to get really super duper legally high? Well, then now's the time to go to YoDelta.com where you can stock up on high quality lab tested Delta 8. We've been talking about... Uh, you know, Yo Delta and Delta 8 since like the beginning of Without a Country. Obviously, the stuff is good. It helps you disassociate, helps you kick back and relax after a long podcast, sometimes during it if you're in the booth. Uh, we love Yo Delta. They have vapes, they have gummies, and it's a great way to support the podcast and also support disassociation during the holidays. Both are very important for some of you. So if you're over the age of 21 and living in the majority of states, where this is legal, you're going to head over to YoDelta.com and stock up on Delta 8. Delta 8 is found in hemp and can be legally shipped to various states to get you high. At YoDelta.com, you can find a mix of gummies and vapes for all your getting stone needs. And of course, I can let you know Delta 8 works, but also I got to let you know these products should be taken responsibly. So once more, that is YoDelta.com, the official Delta 8 sponsor of the Gas Digital Network. And if you use promo code GAS, G-A-S, you're going to get 25% off. Once more, that's promo code GAS for 25% off. YoDelta, home of the Delta 8 that will get you super high. Now back to the show. When you say that like, there was a, you're talking about a corporate uh, takeover of veterinarian schools in this Vox article that I was reading, uh, and, and factory farming, and, and you never would think that veterinary school and factory farming have any association with each other. But can you talk a little bit about how they actually do? Oh yeah, these these big ag corporations give lots of money to veterinary schools, uh-huh. and but importantly, the fact that. Kind of, I know I've talked to so many people who are like, oh, I would have become a veterinarian, but I don't like to see animals suffer. I don't, I could never euthanize an animal. Right. So it's a profession where we've kind of, we're full of people who are willing to see animals suffer and we are willing to euthanize animals. Um, and what does that lead to? It leads to people who are willing to legitimize 
factory farming things. Like how does, how do things become industry standard? Like right. just, you know, gestation crates for pigs where they're kept in these two and a half by seven and a half foot stalls for the duration of their pregnancy, which is 114 days before then moving to a farrowing crate, another cage they're confined in. The veterinarians defended that practice. They defended things like forced molting where you starve birds so that they can produce, so that when you refeed them, they produce more eggs. Um, we and just as, to hop in when you when you say the veterinarians defended that are you, are you uh, referring to the American Veterinary Medical Association like as a group so that's the group that there's a, a board of veterinarians who have been are, are they elected to those positions are they assigned how how is the board created in that it's a little bit tricky some some are elected by local you know states it's very confusing who gets to be voted on like you do you do have to have some ties and I've right, tried so, to so it's on- like regular politics where it's just like yeah you made it to the top but you did some shifty stuff to get there <laughs> and if you're like a, as somebody like me who thinks like hey we need to scale down animal agriculture we need to use the yes less animals in research and create more humane methods and everything you're not going to be one of those people who's going to be elected and the rest of the profession when the everybody else has participated in things like terminal surgeries there's this cognitive dissonance like i participated in it and and here's another thing it's there was a great study done um back in the day where they took human medical students who also had to kill dogs in their training. And they asked them before, how do you feel about this? And they were very apprehensive. I don't know. I don't. But then afterwards, after they cut and after they did it, they're like, oh, this was such a good, important learning experience. And so there's the belief that I I did it. Now other students have to do it or else they are not, they're going to be denied, you know, good quality education that I received. Um, so we we have to validate this horrible thing that we did. And that leads to the door of opening the door of like all the other things that we have to do to animals um, and things like gas chambers to kill pigs, which is horrifying. And now with avian influenza, ventilation shut down where they seal up the barns and pump in heat to kill millions of birds in a facility that way where they suffer for hours before dying. And that's done so when the, because when avian flu infects the animals, they're no longer, you know, in quotes, useful. So they just have to kill them so that the avian flu doesn't spread to the rest of the uh, livestock. Is that? Yeah, it's a legit concern. Like sure. all of these birds are going to die because they were infected by avian influenza. There And it used to be back in the day when you're a farmer, like you take on a certain responsibility that you provide food and shelter and water to your animal and a quick and painless death. Right. Yeah. But when factory farming gets so big, the numbers are so massive. You cannot ensure any of those things. You cannot ensure access to food and water if you're animal, if you're one bird in a barn full of 30,000 your farmer is not going to find you that you're lame and you can't walk and you can't get to food and water and they're not able to ensure you a quick and painless death by any means. Right. It Um, it seems like a really quickly go down to like the uh, quickest, cheapest, or, or at least the cheapest way um, for the farm to kill the animals. I'm guessing that's what it quickly devolves to. Yeah, nothing easier than just turning on the heater and waiting. Um, That's when there are less cruel methods. There's like high expansion nitrogen foam where they Mm. pass 
put in a few seconds and die a few minutes later. Um, and we're talking hours and veterinarians, some of small minority, like we've pulled vets, 75% are on our side and want this ended, but a small minority is like virulently defending this and saying that it has to be done. We have to leave all options on the table. Um, and I, I, it, we just, we groom and condition these people to do this. They're not bad people. A lot of them, they're then susceptible to the pressures to rationalize, um, these sorts of treatment to animals. And I, I see it. I talk to people, I hear the rationalizations and I hear the lack of urgency to change it. But what would be the rationalization to uh, kill uh, hundreds of birds in that manner when there's another manner that is much quicker that we know about and is seemingly used widely? Like, (laughs) what's the rationalization there? I I just got um, some FOIA documents from Oregon. Uh Foster Farms did this on their big flock. And Every, every place needs to fill out their rationale for why they used VSD. Okay. And their rationale was they had, they depopulated two barns with the more humane method, which is the foam. Okay. But then they out of foam, they couldn't get more for three days. Okay. So that's a problem that we need to fix. They need to be able to get the foam quickly. Immediately. If yeah. they waited three more days, then more birds would die, risk of spread to the other farms in the area. And the the ventilation shutdown would work, be less effective because those dead bodies lying in that farm are like a, a heat sink and don't produce heat and make it harder for ventilation shutdown to work. Um, and as another rationalization is there weren't enough workers to, to do it. And we're talking about, you just need a handful of people. Mm-hmm. Um, this, so there's always excuses. There's always, oh, we couldn't get that. Oh, there's, it, it uses too much water. Oh, it made, makes the barns muddy. It would mean that it would take us longer to uh, repopulate with more birds. And it, so there's always reasons that you're always debunking and there's always, it, it never ends. Right. So. And is there anything that you know about to do to make this foam more accessible or like who's producing it? It seems like a nice money-making opportunity in this capitalist society that we live in to for someone to start creating more of this foam. You can make money and do something nice for animals at the same time. I mean, you're nice. You're, I'm using nice loosely there, but, you know, they already have the avian flu. So, yeah. What I understand, it's not, not the, so much the foam that they – that. That's accessible, okay. but it's the fact that the USDA only has one contractor to do this sort of thing. And what a, su- um, what a surprise. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. And it's like, we just need to get more contractors and mm. more training. Like, and then there's like, oh, is there enough people trained to do this? And the USDA only lets certain people do it. So it's like the, a bureaucratic nightmare and uh-huh. the, the thing that's Burts out the foam there. Um, th- all things that. So here's an example. Jenny O Turkey Store got eighty nine million dollars in indemnity payments for killing their birds, for their birds being infected with avian influenza. You'd think with eighty nine million dollars they could get their own device sure. to kill animals in a less barbaric way and yeah. the highest methods available. Like they they need to spend the big bucks to get the high expansion nitrogen foam, like whatever needs to be done. 
to depopulate their their birds in a less cruel way than this. Are they doing that? No. And I think they're just they don't think that there's enough pressure from the consumers, from government to do this because they have all the rationalizations. They're still bringing in money for doing this this way. I, I don't disagree with them as far as like there not being enough public outcry, right? Because the unfortunate thing that you that I see even as I get more interested in animal welfare is, and I know you talked about PETA, and, and PETA's hard because, you know, I think some of their their tactics are a little aggressive, right? And when you're when you're starting from a place where people are, you know, actively eating meat and and wearing animal products still not concerned at all about animal testing not a, not aware of it you know uh that it's still happening uh you know I, I know so many intelligent uh women in my life who thought that animal testing still in I guess I was having these conversations in 2023 literally meant putting mascara on bunnies like that like it was a fun thing I'm like no they're like pouring fluids on them, they're getting burn marks, and then they're getting euthanized. Like, they really had no idea what animal testing in in modern times still means. So that's kind of where I've started. I, I try to I've tried to take a, a calmer approach to it. I certainly don't come in and ask, start with asking people to go vegan. I myself am not vegan. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think if people knew all these ways that you can help animals that honestly isn't going to affect your life. And I get it. Life is already hard enough. You don't want to add anything that's going to make your life harder. Even when I recommend um, checking products for animal testing, like, yeah, it's a bit of a pain in the ass. I'm spending 15, 20 extra minutes in the toothpaste aisle at Dwayne Reed. But like, then I think about like, well, now I can gargle without, no, you know, an animal having suffered for this and I feel better. And to me, it was worth those 15, 20 minutes, but it's not to everyone. Um, so I, I guess it's like, what do you think is a way that we can talk about this without being annoying? I mean, like, that's my critique of animal activism for like from a comedic standpoint and from someone who is on the <laughs> sides of the animal activists. Uh, it's it's a little bit annoying and it's a little bit finger finger pointy and yeah. but I want to I want people to access the information and then be able to consume it using their own critical thinking because I find it hard to believe that someone is going to see f- footage of animals being abused and be like I don't care like I just don't think that's going to be the result. Yeah, no, and the vast majority of people care about animals and I I wish you know everybody's going to respect I, I think there's so many different activist groups is because people respond in different ways. Sure. And it, that group was made for a certain type of person. Yeah. And, you know, our honor is made for veterinarians and we talk about things in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most people are outraged that their tax dollars are 89 million of dollars of their tax dollars are going to Jenny O Turkey store whose CEO is making $6 million. Like, all that money is basically going into his pocket. Tyson Foods made $29 million in taxpayer bailouts for this. Their CEO made over $13 million this wow. year. Yeah. I think people are pissed about that. Yeah. And people are want information. We don't have to bombard them with the horror of it. Mm-hmm. But it's so the the industry has drastically changed our diets over the years. Like we yeah. used to only eat 60 pounds of meat in 1960, and now it's well over 200 pounds in the United States. 
And that's all due to marketing because how hard is it to get cruelty-free food? We all deserve the right to have access to food that doesn't require animal bodies, animal harm, and products like you were talking about too. Like we deserve access to those products and for it not to be difficult to have access products that we, we, that are healthy, that we want, but the, the, these powerful corporations purposefully have made it very difficult for us. They put their, their harmful products in everything. They make those foods highly addictive, easily accessible, easily packaged. I just think of like, I was traveling and I went to Whole Foods to just, I couldn't chop up a a pineapple because I didn't have any utensils. I just wanted some pineapple and I grabbed a container and it was $14 for pineapple. Yeah. That should be subsidized, Mm -hmm. not Tyson's chicken that they roast alive, you know, Mm -hmm. for eating the Jenny O turkey. Um, all of the the produce that should be readily available and accessible and everybody should be able to grab it. Fast food, you should be able to have slaughter-free food that's complete and nutritious and really cheap. And oh, that's my that- dream to start a healthy fast food restaurant. That I mean that I have a whole I have a whole long-term plan for this, but I also I have a lot of I have a lot of plans. So that's after the senior dog sanctuary. But yeah, lot a lot, lot of things going on. But I, I agree with you. And having lived in Harlem for 10 years, I mean I was like, oh, this is what they're talking about when they're talking about a food desert. It's much better now. There is a Whole Foods in Harlem. I mean, the price is still astronomical. But I mean, there was a time when if I wanted to eat fresh fruits and vegetables that weren't rotting, like the quality of the produce alone at the supermarkets downtown compared to where I lived on like 132nd Street. It was disgusting. It was absolutely disgusting that this was what the people of that, you know, this community were being offered. Really just it, it, it was I found it to be appalling, quite frankly. Yeah, it's really bad. I, I was in Tahiti a while ago and they have they subsidized bread there, which like, well, I don't I wish they would subsidize something else personally. Right. But they, they subsidize bread so you can get these huge baguettes um, for like, I think it was 50 cents or a dollar. Like, and so I just grab them and feed the dogs and whatever. Um, but like, imagine if like little salads were that cheap and with beans and quinoa and hummus and everything, people could just grab those and it would hardly cost anything. I bet we could change people's diets and 95% of us are fiber deficient. So, yeah. What, so what, uh, what. Is it the USDA that's making these decisions on what is subsidized? Who is making these decisions on who gets these these bailouts and everything? Well, it's interesting. The American Veterinary Medical Association created a cooperative agreement with the USDA, and they drafted their guidelines on depopulation in emergency events. Um, mm. so the AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association, ultimately their guidelines dictate which companies get bailouts because you can only get a, a bailout if you use the methods listed in the ABMA's guidelines on depopulation and mm. fill out some extra forms, copy, paste, whatever you need to do to make VSD a okay thing to do. Uh-huh. Um, it's ultimately the ABMA that said people like Jenny O can get bailouts for, for heating their animals to death. And that I wanted to change. And um, we submitted two petitions to the ABMA. Uh, They put the question 
the first petition back to the panel on depopulation said, you decide. The director of the Animal Welfare Division said, well, it's foolish to open the document now in, since we just did it. And this was back in 2021. Um, we're going to do other work that we need to do. And it's still, it's been three years since the original petition we submitted and nothing has been done on that. And then they flat out denied our second petition. They're like, no, this is just like the previous petition you did. And I'm like, well, you didn't do anything about the previous petition. Sure. Meanwhile, millions and millions of birds are being killed this way. So, um, and it affected research because more less cruel methods like nitrogen foam were not listed in the guidelines. So the USDA didn't even have that as an option for people to use. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's bad <laughs> and it's, it's our, my own fault as a veterinarian. Right. And then, and when you talked about the gas chambers for pigs, is that when also when pigs get sick or what is that? What is the, why is that being used? So it, back in the nineties, only 2% of pigs were, this is where, they, how they're slaughtered. And so we slaughter 130 million pigs in the United States every year. That, we later eat, that, that people later eat or? Yeah, these are healthy pigs that we eat. Um, yeah, because I was going to say, I was like, if they're if they're dying via gas chamber, that doesn't even, I mean, a, a horrific alone for the pigs. But then part two is we're then consuming this. That doesn't feel uh, yeah. nutritious. Um, and it's, so, yeah, it, this is horrifying. We And it, it's we used to like just use either electrocution or captive bolt gun to kill these pigs. Then they invented these CO2 gas chambers where you could put in, you know, six pigs at a time into the gas chamber and then lower it down into the CO2. But there's, there were a couple of studies done where they like looked at the pigs, but you can't see in any facility what happens to the pigs once they go down. When the gondola comes up and they spill the dead pigs out, you don't know anything's wrong unless you see some of the pigs still alive at the end of it, um, which mm. does happen now and then. Temple Grandin, I don't know if you're familiar, round-out behaviorist, had movies made about her. She um, She's uh, autistic, and because of her autism, is thought to have a special connection and awareness of animals and has developed slaughterhouses that uh, are supposedly more humane. But she wanted to do a study where they put cameras in the gas chambers to yeah. see how yeah. the pigs responded. Yeah. And the company shut her study down and she couldn't do it. Um, then activists put cameras in there and saw and recorded 16 hours of footage of what happens to the pigs in the gas chambers. And it's horrifying. They're screaming, they're scrambling yeah. for minutes on end, gasping. And with CO2, it's this feeling of air hunger, you know, the breathlessness when you like feel like, oh my God, I can't get enough to breathe. Yeah. It's the anxiety. That's the feeling that they have before they die. Um, but it's more efficient because you can get six at a time and nobody has to watch it. So it's like this separation that happens. Um, nobody right. has to see. And now 90 
90% of pigs are killed this way. So 90% of 130 million pigs in the United States are wow, killed. Wow, because that was going to be my, my follow-up question. My follow-up question was going to be how prevalent is that method? Because I think, unfortunately, like, I, I, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about PETA. But just as an example of that organization, I feel like, you know, sometimes when people see really horrific animal uh, slaughter videos, they think, well, that's like only happening 1% of the time, that these organizations find the cruelest video they can, and that's what they circulate. But I mean, you you pretty succinctly just described what happens. You yourself are a veterinarian, and uh, and you're now saying 90% of the pigs consumed in America, are we talking? Are killed this in way? The in, yeah. Okay. And, yeah. And it's done in other countries too, like mm-hmm. Australia. But um, yeah, it's it's bad. And it, and it was created because of efficiency. And there is some belief that it could have been more humane than the electrocution because you had to line up the pigs single file to have them electrocuted. And it was hard on the staff too to have sure. to like electrocute these pigs and see these animals die slaughterhouse workers already suffer high rates of psychological distress Mm. um physical trauma too and these are marginalized people nobody grows up wanting to be a slaughterhouse worker they do it because they were came here from another country they have often felony charges if they are american citizens and can't get jobs anywhere else um but but they suffer alcoholism, drug abuse, because to try to numb the psychological effects of having to see these animals every day. Um, uh, Dr. Rachel McNair recently published an article in um, the AMA AMA Journal of Ethics about um, perpetration-induced traumatic stress, both post and present traumatic stress that slaughterhouse workers face. And it's like post-traumatic stress, it's something in the past, but if you're a slaughterhouse worker and you continue to be a slaughterhouse worker suffering present traumatic stress. And what do you do about that? Mm -hmm. Your nightmares. Um, it's, it's horrifying. So, So, I mean, you know, again, if, so for people who are, you know, consuming meat and, and not thinking about stopping. And again, that's not, that's like so far on the list of things I'm trying to encourage. That is like mm -hmm. step 18. I think there was a million things you can do before that. And I know that's the one that people want to part with. So I don't even, I don't even try to talk about that one. Uh, I go eat a little less, you know, whatever. Um, But Mm -hmm. like when we talk about um, humanely uh, killing animals, which to me feels like an oxymoron, but whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll ride with the, with it. So are there companies? You know, like uh, you see commercials from Chipotle or I know Purdue likes to pat themselves on the back in their commercials. Are there companies that you can recommend where these animals are actually getting killed in what we would consider a humane way that we can consume meat from if we choose to do so? I personally can't recommend. Um, I have any. um, I think people just need to be aware and also demand that these companies change. It's so interesting. Like I have all these petitions and everything. And I always ask people like, are you like, what's your dietary habits? It always seems like it's the people who don't eat the meat who are the ones taking action and pushing these companies to change and make things better. For sure. Why aren't you meat eaters doing it? Like, and ultimately, even though I don't eat animals, I am still paying for it through my tax dollars, Jenny O is still getting money. Tyson Foods is still getting my money. So you all should be upset and 
telling, you know, your your legislators, your representatives in Congress, you don't want your tax dollars going to support this corporation or any of these corporations. Um, Most people don't think that these multinational billion dollar corporations should be getting our money. I mean, I think it can be put to much better use elsewhere. So let's start there. Like make your dietary habits, whatever you want. Um, Maybe I I don't even want to make, for me, it's like kind of just morally unconscionable to, to make any recommendations for. I hear you. For, and I wouldn't want you to do that. I mean, from a, from a woo, like I want to go like from a woo perspective, like if this is the way that your dinner is, is getting to your plate, I mean, it feels like you're just ingesting trauma. And I mean, listen, I, I have a lot of, the, I do have a f- full on planet of the apes theory that the animals are going to all attack us and murder us one day. And I'm going to be like, you know what? We had it coming, but that's, that's for like a different, different podcast. I mean, um, but I like do, I do think that, yeah, our own people are going to attack us. Like the yeah. slaughterhouse work, the ripple effect of that yeah. trauma. Yeah. That is ultimately, and, and you know, I think it, it, it causes this whole system of harm, this idea, this hierarchy, the idea that yes. some people deserve to be better treated better than others. And that extends down to the animals like, oh, because you're a man, you get, you deserve to be treated better than a woman I agree. because you're white, you deserve to be treated better than people of other races. Yeah. Um, and it just trickles down and these slaughterhouse workers, we don't care about them because they're slaughterhouse workers and the, and the animals, we don't care about the animals. Well, that's going to affect our ecosystems. That's going to affect um, biodiversity, wildlife. That's going to affect our ability to grow food to begin with. We're not even going to have enough land because of climate change. We're not going to be able to even grow food for these animals. Um, mm. Pretty, And our diets are going to be changed whether we like it or not, mm-hmm. because of all of the threats, things like avian influenza already causing call it, causing eggs shortages around the world and meat right. shortages. That's another virus is going to happen. It's just an arms race with nature that we have going on. So you can voluntarily change your diet or you can be forced to later on as mm-hmm. my. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I, we, I, we have to, I just lost her feed. Um, we have to, we have, <laughs> Um, I can hear you still. I just can't see you. But yeah, uh, there you go. I uh, we I have to wrap up this interview now. I, I I if you're interested, I would love to have you back maybe for a check in. I know you're doing some incredible work, um, but uh, we have a very socially active audience. So I think uh, including terminal labs and veterinary schools, including everything that we just talked about with um, the meat industry um, and the you know poultry industry. I guess can you leave us with maybe like top three things we can do as non-veterinarians who aren't going to be most likely who aren't going to be devoting our whole lives to animal activism? Like what can a regular person do to assist all the work that you're spending your life on? Sign sign up for our newsletter on ourhonor.org and follow us on social media. We're going to be launching some more campaigns around this to address these companies, to address the USDA, um, the talk to your legislators. We're going to have some, some letters that you can send some templates, go to humane to learn more about gas chambers and sign on there. 
Um, and we're going to be doing some more activism around that. So if you're interested in any of these, um, please follow us on social media, Our Honor Vets, and ourhonor.org is our website. HumaneSlaughter.org is our other website um, to learn more about all these things. And we'll keep you updated as things progress. Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, partake in this interview, Dr. Heath. It was I mean, you know, it was sent shivers down my spine, but I'm glad to have the information uh, rather than not have it and live in the darkness. I, I, I like to make myself sad every day by not living in the darkness. That's my commitment um, to society. And thank you so much for the work you're doing. And we'll absolutely uh, put all the information you just said in the description of this podcast so our listeners can take action if they choose to do so. And uh, yeah, let's let's stay in touch. I'd love to be of service to you any additional ways that I can. Awesome. Thank you so much for letting me talk about this and give me a platform. So. Absolutely. Thank you. Have a good night. All right. Oh, man, I love uh, it's weird to say I love that interview when we just talked about like animals getting slaughtered in horrific ways for 45 minutes. But I I really I, I that that was uh, extremely interesting. And um, I, that that interview was offered to me by a listener who uh, volunteers for our honor. And she said, hey, the the doctor who uh, founded this nonprofit would love to talk to you. So if I'm ever talking about something on this podcast and you think that you know someone, someone with some kind of credentials, it has to be, uh, who, who can speak to a subject matter that we're focusing on on this show, like, please shoot me an email at without a, uh, a country podcast um, at gmail.com. I you know, there's there's people doing extraordinary work all over the country and all over the world that I'm and I'm not going to be able to track all of you down. So please offer yourselves to me. That is um, really, really incredible. Um, all right. So my enemy of the state this week, obviously, obviously going off that interview, uh, factory farmers, factory farms of the state. I don't want to make it on the people. I want to make it on the concept. So factory farms. Uh it was, I mean, so many things that I've learned in the past week have been eye-opening. And I, I think the the tight correlation between the American Veterinary Medical Association, which we would think would be a positive association, we would think it's helping animals, their, their correlation and their involvement uh, with animal suffering and factory farming is just, is, is just uh, really... Um, yeah, it's mind-boggling, honestly. There's there's so much bad truths that we can continue to uncover every day. And I know this is like heavy for some people. Um it's heavy for me too, but I ju- I just find a lot of joy in that first level of uncovering the truth because once you have the truth, my and this is my perspective, it's not everyone's. Once you have the truth for me, then you can then you can do with the truth whatever you want. Um, and obviously there's evil truths that I know, I know of. You're not going to be able to take action on every evil truth that you ever are come into contact with into your life. It is, it's an impossibility. Um, but I do think it is better than living in the darkness. Um, and then you can choose what you want to do with the truth. Um, so again, thank you, uh, to Dr. Crystal Heath, who you just heard from. 
You can, uh, again, go to ourhonor.org uh, and learn more about her organization. Um, all right, let's get into some other topics. I know everyone is not obsessed with animals. And again, that was something that was presented to me. That's I wasn't even looking for that one. That one came to me, you guys. Um, from a lawyer, actually. A lawyer. A lawyer brought that to me. Uh, in person. Uh, so I have, uh, we've been talking about these party topics of the week for a few weeks. That was uh, one of my 2024 segments on the show. And uh, there is a film that I think it already came out. Um, if not, it's going to come out soon called Society of the Snow on Netflix. It's out. It's out. You watched it? No. Oh, why do you say no like that? What, do I want to see guys eating each other? Come okay. All right. Well, Society of the Snow, I will be watching it, um, even though it's uh, it's an acty film, not a documentary. That's what I call them. It's an acty film. Did, all right. You really thought film would have survived this no, no, awful no. encounter? No, I'm just saying, to like, make a documentary. Well, I'm saying it could have been like, like a, you know, like what if they did like a found footage from 1972? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like that, you're telling me like I don't know somebody that hungry is gonna think to to keep the camera rolling. No, I'm not. You know what? But imagine <laughs> if someone had the had the for, that person would be fucking rich out of their mind right now. I'm sure they're still rich from writing their books and stuff. They're but, just gonna go but the out thing like is, the Titanic. The just thing is, to the end. If this was happening today, if this if uh, if uh, there was a Uruguayan flight crash today in the Andes. Uh, someone would be TikToking it is the thing. So I don't think it's a crazy that there uh, that there might have someone might have had a camera. I mean, yeah, it's crazy that the technology most likely the technology around in 1972 wouldn't have survived that climate the way technology available to us now could have. That's yes, I understand with you. But and and when I say documentary, sometimes these documentaries are just talking heads with the survivors. So it could have been that. Fair enough. Okay, Fair so enough. again, it's a narrative film, not a documentary, so kind of not what we cover on this show, because um, I don't like when they Hollywood things up. Even I started watching this week uh, George and Tammy, about George Jones and Tammy Wynette, from, which was released, I think, at the end of 2022 on Showtime, and I love like old school country music and country, and I just find, I don't know, country music stars are just more interesting than other types of music stars. I'm fascinated by them. Even when I watch like A&E documentary about like Garth Brooks during COVID, it was just fucking fascinating. Um, but I started watching this and all these over the top things were happening. And then I kept Googling like, did George Jones really do this? Did Tammy Wynette really do this? And half of the coolest shit that happens in the fucking TV series that was, wasn't even true. So I go, why are you wasting my time with this? I'm sure these people were interesting enough to make a factual TV series about them. Like, I, because then I have ideas in my mind about people who really lived on this earth that are completely untrue. And I find that to be really annoying. So that's why I don't like, I'm just not, these narrative drama films, not into it, not into it. Um, don't even get me on the started on the fucking Leonardo DiCaprio indigenous person film where he had to get he had to gain 100 pounds to even be seen on camera uh, hugging a woman who was not a stick figure. Like, don't even get me started on that. Everyone's applauding him. Oh, Leo, look at you. Look at you making out with someone who's over a size four. Wow. Great job, Leo. Give, give you some awards. Annoying. The woman was great, though. Okay, anyway, so this um, 
Society of the Snow is, uh, 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 the synopsis is, in 1972, a Uruguayan flight crashes in the remote heart of the Andes, forcing survivors to become each other's best hope. And by each other's best hope, spoiler alert, they do mean that uh, they were, they were going to eat the people as they died to survive. And so I wanted to, in- to introduce, this is a, a topic that you can use at parties. It's going to be polarizing, but I wanted to introduce a without a country party question of the week. And I want to poll you guys. I'll put the poll in the without a country Instagram as well. But question one, and you guys in the booth, please pay attention because I'm going to ask you to answer. If you were hiking with your friends and your friends died, would you eat them to survive? That's question one. I'll go first. Yes. Uh, I'm sure I would be extremely traumatized by having to do that. But as someone who has seen a lot of people that I love in caskets, I am I am comfortable now saying that I truly believe the body is merely a vessel and what what good is it going to do? I don't find it to be disrespectful. Um, I find it to be just something logical in a terrible event that you hope never happens to you. It just makes sense. I mean, my main concern would be like, would I even be able to consume the meat knowing what it was without constantly throwing it up? Like, like I would be willing to try – uh, whether or not I could actually get it down without throwing up, I don't know. I'm guessing when I was fa- face face to face with my own death that I would be able to swallow the carcass of my friend. But I, do, I do not know for sure. We don't know until we're there. Mike and Natalie. Obviously, you can pass on the question oh, I'm going first? if you want, but um, I would love to know your opinions. If it was really dire... I think I would. I feel the same way as you, I think. Yeah, this is dire. I mean, it seems like based on the circumstances, like they were dying. Because like in the, people in the comments, you know, for st- various stories I've seen about this film were like, I would forage for uh, bugs in the ground. And everyone's like, bitch, it's like fucking the freezing Andes. Like there's yeah. no bugs available. <laughs> yeah. If there was, I, I'm sure I would resort to other things first. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if it was that or die. Yeah. And if they're already dead, I wouldn't be killing anybody to survive, but Right. Yeah. But also same as you, I don't know how I would be in the I feel like I'd have to cook them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I mean I I I, I wasn't like, I wasn't no, 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 but thinking like, of human sushi, but Right, right. I mean it's like what parts, how do I cook them? I have no idea what yeah. my thought process would be. Honestly, I feel like you go organs, you you go brain, you go heart. I feel like that's I like the like most that's what I would have the hardest time with. I'd go leg first. Oh, uh, see, I feel like that would feel so human though. Like if you're going like organ or also aren't like organs very nutrient dense. It's probably the way to go survival wise, like right. health wise. Right. But I feel like just like handling people's organs, I would have a hard time with. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Mike. Okay, I mean, look, absolutely no issue. Depending on the friend. Like, if it was, like, let's say, you know, Brian McKay who works on the... No, uh, it's Alex. Here. It's it's your fiancé. It's my, it's my... It's your fiancé. There's not enough meat on those bones. Come on. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fucking eat her, and then I got to eat you in fucking an hour later? What are we talking about here? There's simply not enough meat on the bones. Your fiancé is the equivalent of MSG. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like eating a Chinese person. Oh, my... Oh, my God. Uh, no, we don't do 
do content like this on that show. <laughs> Save it for Legion of Skanks, you psycho. They don't let me talk on Mike like this. Oh my um, god, that my mistake, guys. That is not that Mike Mike uh, Harrington's views and racist jokes <laughs> do not reflect the views of Without a Country podcast. Thank you. Okay, you brought up MSG, but that's fine. MSG is a chemical that ma- that makes you hungry later. That it, they don't they don't like allow in a lot of food. Like there's even the option to not include MSG on a lot of Uber Eats orders that I've seen. That has nothing to do with Asian people. What are we talking about, Michael? Okay, where's um, the correlation there? I'm oh going butt God. first. I'm going butt first. That's all fat though. What do you mean? Yeah, it's delicious. Yeah, but I mean, what, what we're talking about survival. We're talking about nutrient yeah. dense, like. Isn't What's you gonna... can't just have fat, you need some protein. Yeah, I'm sure there's some protein in a butt. Okay. Well, I mean, it, the question wasn't even what body part you would eat first. It was, would you eat your friends if they were dead? Would you, Heartbeat. would you, and now I, I Natalie introduced a, a, an interesting part. Would you kill someone if it was getting down to it and like you, you ran out of meat? Are you killing someone to How... eat them? All right. I mean, like, I guess it depends who they were. Kind of. Yeah. I'm I'm not I don't know that Alex. I, I don't know that I can kill that I'm that I'm killing anyone no matter if I like them or not. I just don't know if that's happening. If it is, some- I mean, if there's someone who's like attacking me, yes, but I still have a really hard time with that. I think. What about somebody who it's like, all right, like they're they're a drain on our resources to begin with, and they're like on their way out. Like it's kind of like you're a euthanizing fat, them. A fat guy? <laughs> like what you're draining resources? What are you talking about? No, so I'm saying this person is alive, but yeah. they are clearly on their last legs. They're gonna be the next one to go. Do we continue to give them meat and water or kill them to add to the food supply and not take away from our existing resources? So you're uh, or you can you can just hide the rations from them, which is like a pussy way of killing them. Starve them out. That seems way more cruel. Than just being like, all right, buddy, just while you're asleep, got a pillow. I think, but if you're we're going too weak to put up a fight, if we're talking about the lawsuit that's going to happen when we, if and when we get saved, it's it's a lot more coverage to just be like uh, to have starved them out than to actually have like blunt force traumaed them because no one who's going to tell the story. What what we're eating the body? How are they going to do CSI on how this person died? You could because I'm saying they interview other they they could interview other people in the group and someone could rat on you. And if I if you have a rat demeanor, you're next. Okay. Like I can sniff out a rat. Wow. Okay. All right. I um, listen, Corinne. I if, don't know that you can. I think like I know the people that you are loyal to in real life, and like I think I'll, I can list. Uh, several people that I think would stab you in the back in a heartbeat from that list. If you want to talk about it off the fucking mics. I would love to. A. Okay. But B, <laughs> All right. I do see a situation like, let's say I kill, you know, uh, Natalie's there. Natalie's weak and sick and she's going to die anyway. And it's like, all right, why are we doing this? I'm going to do the thing everyone here should do anyway. Euthanize Natalie. If you then bring it up every day for the next three days. Remember when you euthanized Natalie? Yeah. Like, oh, that was a dick move for you to do, by the way. I'm really not okay with that. Be like, all right, Corinne, guess who's next? Okay. We miss her. She's our favorite. <laughs> <laughs> she really <laughs> the while she was still alive. <laughs> all right, follow-up question. If you died and your friends ate you, would you be mad at them from the afterlife? No, I wouldn't be bad. I'd do the same thing. I mean, I, I also would be thinking about, like, what order they did it in of like oh petty from the afterlife we love it we love a petty ghost but i would never i would never fault them in general right 
I feel I feel the same way. I I would not be upset at my friends if they ate me. In fact, like I would I would want them to eat me. I would I would encourage them from the afterlife to eat me. I'm already dead. Doesn't matter what happens to my body. It, 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 and again, like if it's in the end, it, like it's like because there was a lot of discussion about like dishonoring and disrespecting. That's just not. I'm not big on like these like ceremonial ceremonial honorings and stuff uh, of the dead through uh, like earthly possessions. I just think that's kind of wasteful, and I don't believe that you know you know I'm kind of of the you don't take things with you to the afterlife. That's what I believe. So I just think it's all kind of wasteful and nonsensical, and uh, resources should be used on the living, not on the dead. That's how I feel. I would be like if you use like ketchup, I'd be like, "Come on, man!" You're an A. What should I put A one on you? I mean, a little bit of hot sauce, not gonna get mad at, but like, I don't, don't like hot sauce. Don't desecrate the body with ketchup. That's that's offensive. <laughs> I love I love these concerns that we have. <laughs> uh, okay, all right. So anyway, you listeners at home, based on the society of the snow. The two party questions for this week for you are, number one, if you were hiking with your friends and they died, would you eat them to survive? And then number two, if you died and your friends ate you, would you be mad at them from the afterlife? Uh, we'll, we'll get the poll results next week. Very excited to hear back from all of you guys. All right, going into... Regular news stories for this week. Uh, Trump is back on his bullshit, but worse. This article is from thenewyorker.com based on some oral arguments that are going on in court. I thought this was really interesting. This is by Amy Davidson Sorkin. Trump's bizarre immunity claims should serve as a warning. And I, I there was several articles about kind of Trump talking about you know, presidents should be immune from like killing political rivals, et cetera. We'll get into it. Uh, but I, I specifically liked the wording on uh, this title from The New Yorker, the title of this article, because I think warning, the word warning specifically and warnings in general are something that we kind of scoffed at, even myself included, scoffed at a little bit uh, during the, what was it, 2020 election. Um, and I think, or it was the 2016 election when we really scoffed when Trump actually got elected. Yeah. During the 2016 election. And now with Trump, you know, in the running, kind of looking like he's going to get the nomination. Uh, I think we really need to heed these warnings a little bit more seriously this time, especially because should he get elected, it's second term presidency, which you always know if the if the first presidency is balls to the wall, second presidency going to be absolutely out of bounds. It's a little different in this case. Why is it different? Because they weren't consecutive. Yeah, because he can run for another two years after. Oh, I I actually didn't. I don't think that I knew that. I just found this out very recently. From, from where? What's what news source is this? It's a good source, and then I no, googled it. Y- really? What is there a name to this? I, I I actually really I don't think I knew about this. So, wait. Maximum years you can serve as president, U.S. Yeah, the amendment caps the service of president 
at 10 years. If a person succeeds the office of president without election and serves less than two years, he may run for two full terms. Otherwise, a person succeeding to office of president can serve no more than a single elected term. This this seems like that only makes sense if he like the you know prior president was assassinated and he was then gone into office, not by election. Yeah, I'm looking for the. I'm looking I don't for the think this is. Thing. I don't know that your information is correct. No, it is. Because <laughs> uh, I, I, when I'm now reading this again, I, I, I do recall uh, if you go into the presidency uh, because of factors uh, more than yeah. Uh, I don't think this is. Mm. I'm on uh, constitutioncenter.org. No person shall be elected to the office of president more than twice, and no person who has held the office of president or acted as president for more than two years of a term to which some other person was elected president shall be elected to the office of president more than once. But this article shall not apply to any person holding the office of president when this article was proposed uh, by Congress. I don't see this anywhere, but, you know, find me the information and I'll uh, look into it. But that I'm not verifying that. I've never heard Uh, All right. This is from The New Yorker. Trump's bizarre immunity claim should serve as a warning. What might be the most disturbing aspect of the oral arguments is how unsettled the law actually is in the area of presidential powers and accountability. I'm hooked, Amy. I'm hooked. Um, All right. Could a president uh, order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? Judge Florence Pan of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit asked D. John Sauer, a lawyer for Donald Trump, in oral arguments on Tuesday. It was a remarkable question for a remarkable political moment and one that has been a long time coming. Pan was one of three judges on an appeals panel hearing Trump's argument, which seemed in varying degrees to appall them that the case brought against him by the special counsel, Jack Smith, related to Trump's actions in the run up to the assault on the Capitol on January 6, 2021, should be thrown out. Trump contends that in the absence of an impeachment conviction, he is absolutely immune from prosecution for acts related to his official duties as president. Hence, Pan's question about an assassination. That's an official act, an order to seal Team 6, she pointed out. Sauer stalled and tried to qualify his answer by saying that such a president would need to be and indeed would speedily be impeached. Pan interrupted to say that that was more easily said than done. I asked you a yes or no question, she tried again. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first, Sauer said. So your answer is no, Pan said. As everyone in the courtroom knew, Trump was impeached for the second time by the House of Representatives after January 6th, but was then acquitted in his Senate trial. Trump is not quite arguing, at least his team wasn't doing so at this hearing, that his acquittal means that he should be spared further proceedings because of double jeopardy. It is more like double or nothing jeopardy with an impeachment conviction required before a criminal one can proceed. By the Trump team standard, a prosecution couldn't go forward even if, as Pan put it, the purpose of the official action was, quote, unlawful or unconstitutional. What Pan wanted to know was whether Trump was arguing that there would be no criminal prosecution, no liability for him or for any president who acted like an outright gangster, but managed to get out of office before being impeached and convicted. Also jarring 
was what another one of the three judges, Karen Henderson, called a paradoxical aspect of the Trump argument. His lawyers have argued that his attempts to get the results of the 2020 presidential election overturned were related to his presidential duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed because he was accusing Joe Biden and his campaign of breaking election laws. How could it be, Henderson said, that the duty to execute the law itself, quote, allows him to violate criminal laws? Henderson and Pan pointed out another paradox. During Trump's impeachment trial, some Republican senators argued that they were comfortable voting to acquit because he would be susceptible to criminal prosecution later, which they contended was the more appropriate means of holding an outgoing president accountable. As Pan summed up that logic, there's no need to vote for impeachment because we have this backstop, which is criminal prosecution. And it seems that many senators relied on that in voting to quit. Sauer's reply basically was to suggest that one could never know why senators do what they do and also that that was then and this is now. Much of the problem here, of course, is Trump, how far afield of the law he allegedly went as president and how much further he might go if elected again. Trump was in the courtroom for the oral arguments and afterward claimed that by normal standards, if it weren't me, he would have already won the case. He then turned his attention to a legal filing by one of his co-defendants in the RICO case brought against him in Georgia on charges related to the 2020 election, which alleges that the prosecutor, Fannie Willis, has an improper personal relationship that compromises the case with a private lawyer contracted to work with her team. Willis's office has told reporters that it will respond in legal filings. He called her the real criminal. Trump is also separately seeking presidential immunity in the Georgia case. There are two other criminal cases against him for falsifying records in relation to hush money payments and for keeping documents marked classified at his Mar-a-Lago home in violation of the Espionage Act. But neither centers on his official acts as president. He has denied all wrongdoing. But in another way, the country has been headed towards this case for years, Trump or no Trump. Indeed, white, uh, what might be the most disturbing aspect of the oral arguments is how unsettled the law actually is in the area of the presidential powers and accountability, which is a reason that this case will likely ultimately be decided by the Supreme Court. Smith had asked the Supreme Court to take the case directly, bypassing the Court of Appeals. The justices declined, but the case is on an expedited fast track to them anyway. Trump's lawyer was able to cite precedents, notably Nixon uh, versus Fitzgerald, that immunized the president from civil liability for actions within the outer perimeter of his official duties. The Supreme Court has not clearly ruled on a former president's criminal liability, though, or for that matter, on what might count as an official act in that context. Sauer raised the possibility of a prosecutor going after George W. Bush for giving Congress false information in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq and then added, could President Obama be potentially charged with murder for allegedly authorizing drone strikes targeting U.S. citizens living abroad? Sauer was referring apparently to the death of Anwar al Aulaki, also spelled uh, A-U-L-A-Q-I, a 40-year-old American citizen born in New Mexico who was killed in a U.S. drone strike on Yemen in 2011. Al-Awatlaki uh, was known as an, a, uh, as an Al-Qaeda propagandist, and the Obama administration claimed to have secret information showing that he was a threat, but he never indicted, let alone tried. 
He was never indicted, let alone tried. Before Al Olaki was killed, it had become known through press reports that he was on an administration, quote, kill list of pre-authorized targets, and his father filed suit in a U.S. district court, also in D.C., in an attempt to get his son off that list. Anwar's own son, the elder man's grandson, a 16-year-old boy who was born in Colorado, was killed in another drone strike soon afterward, though it was not clear whether he was a target or just in the wrong place. A daughter was also killed in a raid in Yemen in 2017. I wrote a number of pieces about al Aulaki at the time, wondering, as others did, what legal standard would differentiate his planned killing from that of an American citizen living in London whom an administration considered dangerous. There's still no clear answer. The elder Al Aulaki's case was dismissed for lack of standing, basically because he wasn't the one on the kill list, and subsequent litigation failed to resolve the legal issues fully. During the oral arguments, James Pierce, the lawyer representing Smith's office, notably talked about such decisions being made under a time pressure too great uh, for the, how do I say that word again? Damn it. (laughs) Sorry. Mm, I have to look now. Uh, Pronunciation for the Kadri. 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 Okay. Um, For the cadre of lawyers around the president to keep up with, uh, if there were a drone strike in which civilians were killed that theoretically could be subject to some sort of prosecution as murder, Pierce said, I think that might be the kind of place in which the court would properly recognize some kind of immunity. That answer might benefit from additional Uh, jurisprudential reflection, and not only because Sauer, Trump's lawyer, seized on it while speaking to reporters after the arguments. Often, when judges give lawyers hypotheticals, they seem far-fetched. There were no drone strikes on January 6th. Perhaps it is clarifying to have, in Trump, a reminder that the extreme can be near at hand. It is important to picture the powers of the presidency in his hands or in those of someone like him, because they have been and may be again. Still, the judges were clearly sensitive to the prospect that this country might become one in which any number of political decisions could be criminalized. Sauer mentioned Pandora's box. Henderson asked how to keep the floodgates under control. Pierce focused on the unprecedented nature of what happened on January 6th. If that kind of fact pattern arises again, I think it would be awfully scary if there weren't some sort of mechanism by which to reach that criminally. Pierce went on to ask, what kind of world are we living in if a president orders his SEAL team to assassinate a political rival and resigns, for example, before an impeachment? Not a criminal act. President sells a pardon, resigns or is not impeached, not a crime. I think that is an extraordinarily frightening future. When Sauer rose for his rebuttal a few minutes later, he referred uh, derisively to the so-called frightening future. By way of a response, he offered a strangely circular argument that there was nothing scary or unfamiliar about a world in which a president could not be prosecuted after leaving office without impeachment because no president before Trump had been prosecuted. It didn't seem to occur to him that his client might have been an unusual president. That's not a frightening future, he said. That's our republic. So I think that was just an interesting conversation to have. Again, kind of Trump still riding along um, his political career with this like, I do what I want, try and stop me, fuck face attitude. 
And again, I think it, it, we need to be cautious of it. Mike, did you find anything to back up your claims? Uh, no, quite the opposite. <laughs> okay. You know what? And this is why we fact check. You, I was just like, I just don't think that is so. <laughs> I've never heard of that. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, a lot of people are writing about how uh, the fact that he would be on his last term and the fact that he thinks that he has complete immunity because he's president means okay. some wild shit could go down. Right. So basically exactly what I it makes said. Makes want to vote for him more. And, that, and, and, and exactly what I wanted to focus on in this uh, Trump segment. Every, yeah. Correct. Okay. Great. Wow. You know what? It feels nice. It, feel, it feels nice to be on top of it. Um, I mean, and then that's not, it's, it's not like I invented this, uh, this, this thought of of second term presidency being uh, one to be aware of, especially for a president who did whatever the fuck he wanted in first term. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Trump term two is that's a scary world. I mean, exciting if you're Mike, apparently, but I, I'm not, especially uh, with the uh, Middle East being at war right now. Although, I mean, there's very few, if any, positives about um, the Israel-Hamas war. But one small little bright spot, I think, uh, if you are more interested in the Democratic Party winning, is that uh, when uh, the world is at war, especially when the U.S. is involved, it is more likely that the sitting president will be reelected because the country often thinks the devil that you know is better than the devil that you don't know. Although the variable here is that Donald Trump is a is a devil that we kind of know because we've seen him in action for four years already. So that could be a variable that's thrown into that a little bit. Um, speaking of the Israel Hamas war, I found this is a I, this is from allsides.com. And I usually use all sides just to kind of see when I'm introduced to a new media website, kind of where they're sitting on the political spectrum, because it rates uh, websites, uh, news websites uh, from, you know, from center to, to left to right and kind of see, shows you where the bias in their articles is most likely coming from. Um, but they also showcase their own stories in a very similar way to we do on this show. So I wanted to do just a quick Israel Hamas war update from all sides. Um, the headline from today that was bouncing around uh, the most or prominently was that South Africa accused Israel of genocide at the International Court of Justice. South Africa accused Israel of enacting a genocide against Palestinians in Gaza at the International Court of Justice. Um, and this happened on Thursday. Uh, Israel said South Africa distorted the truth, the details. Uh, lawyers representing South Africa argued that Israel's purportedly genocidal acts included mass killings, forced displacement, food and water blockages, and destruction of Gaza's healthcare system, pointing to Hamas's deadly October 7th attacks. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the opposite was true, and he says, quote, Israel is, uh, is accused of genocide while it is face, uh, fighting against genocide. And now it gives you a couple political perspectives from uh, the different uh, biases. Uh, the headline um, from uh, a left-leaning bias is powerful case. Uh, Nimr Sultani, a Palestinian citizen of Israel, wrote in The Guardian 
that South Africa's accusation was a wake-up call for many Western governments and media outlets that uncritically supported Israel's savage war. Uh, then the headline from another uh, left-leaning uh, article, which was from the Washington Post, said, time to ask some hard questions. Farid Zakaria, who ha- has a center bias, argued in the Washington Post that Israel's war was not a genocide. However, he questioned whether the destruction in Gaza was proportionate saying it was being perpetrated by a deeply unpopular government in Jerusalem that is trying to salvage its reputation. Israel should ask these questions now, Zakaria wrote, so that it does not look back on this episode with shame and regret. And then the third um, headline and kind of perspective from uh, an op-ed with a right-leaning perspective Uh, The headline was Political Theater. This was from the Wall Street Journal editorial board. They said that South Africa was volunteering to be legal counsel for Hamas and sees U.N. grandstanding as a way to curry favor with Russia, China and Iran. The editors also noted cases where South Africa turned a blind eye to dictators and mass killings in Africa. And that um, that is interesting perspective. The Wall Street Journal also like even though they have a right leaning bias, I would say out of all the sort, you know, resources we use on this show, I don't feel like it's a hardcore right lean. And I guess that's why they're calling it just a right lean, not a hard right stance. You know, that also reminds me um, last week when we were talking about uh, genocide in general and. Uh, you know, people who maybe weren't speaking out about uh, Palestinians. Uh, I mean, I I always it always makes me think of the the Uyghurs and how that was a genocide that you know we talked about several times. I believe when I think when Shane was on the show, we talked about on this show. But overall, kind of just not talked about a lot in mainstream media and even when I found out about it you had you had to do some searching to really find out uh about that genocide uh and I was because I basically googled like what were the top top genocides you know because there's a lot of conversation like this is the top genocide um as far as numbers I mean not that that not that that matters or not that we're trying to get in a game but I mean there were there are Many genocides that have happened in recent years um, that have kind of not really been talked about, certainly in uh, U.S. media, large scale, Um, so that if we're going to talk about like the loss of human life, we need to be talking about like all all of it. I guess that's my point. And it's interesting to me. why this genocide is affecting our media more so than other genocides. And I, I mean, I'm guessing it's just because of the the breakdown of ethnicities in America. Like that has to be the reason. Um, but there certainly are. I mean, you can go right to Wikipedia yourself. Darfur uh, in Sudan, like that was one that was talked about a lot here, I think. But I mean, then there's, you know, the genocide of Yazidis by the Islamic State, that one I don't think we talked about a lot. Uh, that was, you know, 2014 to 2019. 
uh, Iraqi Turkmen genocide. That's 2014 to 2017. Um, and then going on uh, in Myanmar, uh, the Rohingya genocide. I mean, so like if we want to talk about people, di- there's there's always people dying. So that's kind of my point again, like it's even the people who are saying like, why aren't you talking about this? Well, not that pointing a finger back is helpful, but it's also like, well, why weren't we talking about all these other genocides? Like human life is human life, period. It, it It doesn't matter if that ethnicity is represented in our country or not. I mean, that makes it closer to home, sure, um, for people. But I think like, this is something that we should all be aware of. Like, if there's a genocide happening on the planet, we should we should know about it, right? We should be talking about it. Um, all right, so that's your Israel-Hamas war update. And then the next story that I wanted to get to, I it's interesting. This is a story that I wasn't even sure if I wanted to cover on this show because I think it's the kind of truth, and I'm not saying that this article is the truth, but I think it's the kind of you know, exploration perhaps is the is the better word that unfortunately makes or can make racists feel just in their racist uh, racism or or powerful or right. But this is a story um, from Barry Weiss's Free Press by uh, a journalist named Coleman Hughes. Um, you might have heard him. He, we did interview him on Guys We Fucked. Obviously, not about this kind of stuff. Um, I know him personally, not super well. Um, Christina certainly knows him a lot better, but he is one of the core writers and, and journalists for Free Press, which I talk about a lot on this show, a website that I think offers a lot of interesting perspectives and and certainly encourages critical thinking. Um, but I saw him uh, on Instagram today basically advertising uh, this piece that he did about some uncovered truths from the the George Floyd and uh, Derek Chauvin cases. And he is he is a black journalist. And again, I, 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 I'm not I, I didn't watch the documentary that he's referencing a lot in this piece, uh, which is called The Fall of Minneapolis by Alpha News. Um, it's available on YouTube. I have the link here. I'll share it with you guys in the description. And I might watch it myself. I don't know. Um, I do. I did some research into Alpha News. Uh, they are a Minnesota Minnesota media outlet focusing on politics and social issues that you might not see in traditional me- media. That's how they are self-described. Um, I do want to point out that according to allsides.com, uh, they're saying that the source displays media bias in ways that strongly align, and they don't always say strongly, they're saying that strongly align with conservative traditional or right-wing thought and or policy agendas. Um, So I do want to point that out. And then I took it a step further and I said, well, then how can I trust the ratings that are coming from allsides.com? And they really kind of, allsides.com really have their checks and balances uh, available. Um, It is headed by three people, uh, one who is right-leaning, one who is left-leaning, and one who is a centrist, which is kind of what you want to see. You don't want to see one main person owning uh the company uh 
It's an American-based company that estimates the perceived political bias of content on online written news outlets and then presents different versions of similar news stories from sources, all sides, rates as being on the political right, left, and center with a mission to show readers news outside their filter bubble and expose media bias. All Sides is specifically the brainchild of John Gable, uh, who has been the company's CEO and primary uh, owner since its first iteration. And then when you go to All Sides, and again, I don't love to get the information from the site itself because that could be skewed any which way, uh, but... They do talk about um, themselves as as looking f- towards civil dialogue and, um, again, news from the left, right, and center. Uh, but, okay. So I, I, it seems to me it's a pretty reliable rating system. It's certainly one that I use for this show. But I do just want to point that out before we get into this article by Coleman that I was a little surprised on Free Press that I saw – this alpha news documentary being like, I don't want to say publicized, but like widely shared. Cause I'm not sure that it's uh, a documentary based by people who have journalistic integrity, I guess. But anyway, um, again, when I was thinking about whether or not to share the article, I was also thinking about something that we talk about this show on the show a lot, how both white liberals and white conservatives tend to use black people and and black voters and black politicians as pawns to prove their political points. And so even though I myself am wary of sharing this perspective um, uh, from a a black journalist, I, I wanted to cover a perspective from a black journalist on something that we all know about who doesn't have the opinion that you perhaps think a black journalist would have or worse yet should have because I think that's what uh, so often especially in America um, we see someone like their skin color or even their their sex their gender expression and because of that we think well of course this person has to be voting this way otherwise like they're not on their own team or they're not intelligent or they don't know what's going on and to me Uh, I think that there's a larger problem with the society that we live in if we see someone's skin color or if we see someone's gender expression or or sex and we assume that, well, they must be associated with a certain political party. So that was a thought process that I went through. Always a thought process with this one, you know, but I always like to talk it out because that's what this show is about. Why do I choose to share the things that I, you know, uh, choose to share? And I always do put a lot of thought in it, especially when I think perhaps what I'm sharing could do a little bit of uh, of damage. Want that to that to be the case with this, but I just found it really really interesting that that he chose to do a piece on this so much so that I actually I I, I had to pay to get this article because it was for subscribers only. So again, this is from the FP.com, which is free press. Uh, it says, "What really happened to George Floyd?" Um, Coleman Hughes on some inconvenient uh, inconvenient reporting that suggests Derek Chauvin is not a murderer, but a scapegoat. All right. It has been almost four years since George Floyd's death in police custody sparked riots in American cities and protests around the world. Since then, the public, thanks to the reporting of mainstream journalists, has settled on a consensus about what happened to Floyd on the evening of May 25th, 2020. 
Officers were in the process of arresting Floyd for paying with counterfeit money at a convenience store when Officer Derek Chauvin, with conscious cruelty, subjected him to his, quote, signature move, a knee on the neck, cutting off his oxygen supply and murdering him. Officers J. Alexander Kong, uh, Thomas Lane, and Tu Thao, uh, rather than intervene, aided and abetted Chauvin's crime. If journalism is the first draft of history, then this draft is now due for a major revision. A new documentary by Alpha News, The Fall of Minneapolis, challenges three key parts of the story now accepted as fact. Uh, First off is the knee on the neck hold was Chauvin's signature move as opposed to a standard maneuver practiced by the Minneapolis Police Department which I think will be um, shortened to MPD in this article. Uh, Two, asphyxiation was the cause of George Floyd's death. And three, Chauvin received a fair trial by an impartial jury. I had never heard of Alpha News before this documentary. The producer of the film, Liz Collin, was a successful reporter and anchor at WCCO Channel 4 in Minneapolis for many years before the death of George Floyd derailed her career. The sticking point was that her husband, former lieutenant and president of Minneapolis Police Union Bob Kroll, defended the four officers who arrested Floyd, denounced the rioters who had recently captured and burned down a police precinct as a terrorist movement and highlighted Floyd's long rap sheet in a letter to police union members. And right out of the gates, I love that uh, Coleman is presenting to us uh, background on who made the film and also why her career was derailed and the fact that her husband uh, was a former uh, lieutenant and president of the Minneapolis Police Union. Obviously, if those things were left out, you go, wow, those are all things I, I definitely need to know to then make my decision about how I feel about the bias in this reporting. Both Kroll and Colin uh, received an intense cancellation, including a protest outside their home, which led WCCO to push Colin out of her anchoring job and eventually led her to leave WCCO and join Alpha News. And again, we see that happening more and more, right? People who, you know, have been reporting in a certain way for a long time uh, getting canceled. And then that doesn't mean that they're going to stop presenting information to the public. It means that they're probably going to go to a place that's more accepting of them. And unfortunately, a lot of times that's the right. You know, I've seen I've seen this happen all the time in uh, in comedy people who were not accepted by the liberal comedians uh, for certain jokes going, fuck you guys, I'm going to the right. And off the top of my head, I can name like two or three people who absolutely blew the fuck up using that approach. And I don't even know if they actually feel that way in their hearts. And that's the problem I have with it. If they do, God bless them. Godspeed. Um, While there, she teamed up with the film's director, uh, Dr. J.C. Shea, a former police officer and volunteer firefighter, to make the film The Fall of Minneapolis. When people think of George Floyd, they think of a viral clip captured and uploaded by a bystander. The infamous clip appeared to show Chauvin's knee on Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, later amended to nine. Nine seconds, along with Floyd's bone chilling screams, I can't breathe, Mama, I'm gonna die. Like everyone who watched this clip, I was horrified when I saw it. 
I could not understand why Chauvin continued to keep his knee on Floyd's neck when he clearly couldn't breathe. I couldn't even understand why they put him belly down on the pavement in the first place, a humiliating and uncomfortable position rather than in the back of the squad car. Especially when you think of like the crime he's even being arrested for, like paying with counterfeit money, like no one is in imminent danger in any way. It's not necessary um, to be abusive. Uh, but the viral clip, as so many often do, started in the middle of the story. When Judge Peter Cahill allowed full footage with multiple angles to become public on August 20, in August 2020, it showed three things that were not obvious from the viral clip. First, the officers spent several minutes trying to get Floyd into the back of the squad car before agreeing, at Floyd's request, to place him on the ground instead. Floyd had complained of claustrophobia in the back of the squad car. Second, Chauvin's knee was not on Floyd's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. It was probably on his neck for at most four minutes, after which it appeared to be above the shoulder blades, as one of the prosecution's own witnesses conceded during Chauvin's criminal trial in 2021. Third, and most importantly, Floyd was saying that he couldn't breathe before he was placed on the ground, as this clip from the documentary shows below. Um, and... You know, I can't share it with you because it's behind a paywall, but it's here. Um, the court of public opinion may have made up its mind based on a single out of context clip. But Chauvin's trial in 2021 represented a chance to revive that consensus in light of all the evidence in order to convict Chauvin of felony murder, which differs from more serious murder charges in that it requires neither premeditation nor the intent to kill. The prosecution had to prove each element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Among other things, they had to prove that one, Chauvin's actions uh, constituted assault or attempted assault, and two, that Chauvin's actions caused the death of George Floyd. The documentary throws both claims into doubt. What I discovered by making my own calls and confirming the documents shown in the documentary is that these key claims are not certain at all. Central to proving the first element, felony assault, was the question. Why did Chauvin have his knee on Floyd's neck and shoulder blade in the first place? If it was an improvised position, as an MPD inspector testified at the trial, then it plausibly constituted felony assault. But... If it was a hold that Chauvin, along with the entire MPD, was trained to do in precisely this kind of situation, then it becomes far harder to argue it was assault. According to the documentary and documents I have reviewed, the move was indeed a standard hold, called the Maximal Restraint Technique, MRT, which the MPD trained its officers to use in situations where handcuffed subjects are com com combative uh, and still pose a threat to themselves, officers, or others, or could cause significant damage to property if not properly restrained, according to the official MPD Use of Force Manual. The section that describes MRT is dated to 2002 and was updated in 2014, 2017, and 2018. The 2023 edition bans MRT. What's more, an MPD training presentation created and shown to Academy recruits in 2018 includes a slide showing an officer performing a hold very similar to the one Chauvin used on Floyd. Um, and they have a picture of that slide, again, available here. Um, and it even says that... Uh, a sudden cardiac arrest typically occurs immediately 
following a violent struggle, uh, place the subject in the recovery position to alleviate positional asphyxia. Um, once in handcuffs, get EMS on scene quickly to monitor and transport. Sign a transport hold on these uh, individuals. Complete a CIC report. And then it has a photo of the officers. Um, and a knee is, in fact, on um, the fake person being arrested's neck. Um, and there are there's one officer with the knee on the neck and then two other assisting officers on this slide that they said they are showing to um police officers in MPD training. At his trial, Chauvin's lawyers wanted to show the jury the above photo from the MPD PowerPoint slide, but the prosecution moved to exclude it, and Judge Cahill agreed, which is really interesting to learn because, I mean, again, like, you're you're kind of only as good as your training, are you not, you know? Their reason was that Chauvin could not prove that he had been personally trained on that photo. But this rationale does not survive scrutiny. In the documentary, six current and former MPD police officers affirm that the MRT was indeed standard training, training that they had received themselves. When asked if he was trained on MRT, Rich Walker, an African-American MPD sergeant with 19 years on the force, replied, yes, all the police officers were trained in MRT. Body cam footage shows that as the officers were taking Floyd out of the squad car, Officer Thomas Lane verbally recommended that they implement the MRT, though he misspoke and called it MRE. If Officer Lane, who had been on the force for less than a week, was aware of MRT, then it defies belief to think Chauvin, a veteran of almost 20 years, was unaware of it, regardless of which particular material he'd been trained on. Uh, if... And then there's another uh, slide uh, or picture of a slide from this PowerPoint presentation that goes over maximal restraint technique. Um, sorry, it's like they used red font and it's really hard to read. But uh, there are, you know, there are different positions that they go over. And specifically for maximal restraint technique, it says a technique used to secure a subject's feet to their waist in order to prevent the movement of legs and limit the possibility of property damage or injury to him uh, slash her or others. Um, and then there's a note at the bottom that says the maximal restraint technique shall only be used in situations where handcuffed subjects are com combative and still pose a threat to themselves, officers, others, or could cause significant damage to property if not properly restrained, which again was, sta was stated above, but is on this actual uh, slide from the Min Minneapolis Police Department PowerPoint presentation. Um, if Chauvin and other officers were performing a trained hold, a reasonable juror could easily doubt that he had committed felony assault. Had Chauvin's legal team had the chance to present all the relevant evidence, the verdict might have been different. Chauvin was sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison for felony murder. However, there is no guarantee that he will survive it. In November, he was stabbed 22 times in the prison library, library by an inmate. The inmate told investigators that he chose to stab Chauvin on Black Friday to pay homage to the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as the black hand symbol associated with the Mexican mafia. 
Officers Tao, Kong, and Lane have somewhat better prospects, having been sentenced only to 4.75, three and a half, and three years, respectively, for aiding and abetting manslaughter. Colin and Che hope that by raising awareness about some of the flaws from the officers' trials, public pressure will build to the point that their cases are reexamined. For the officers, there is perhaps reason for hope, given that the documentary has received 5.7 million views since its online release in late November between YouTube and Rumble. More if you count uh, views on the documentary's website. And again, things like the fact that like a lot of the views were on Rumble Again, like that's the kind of information that goes that makes me go go. Oh, this I'm hesitant to you know share this. But again, knowing this why, specific, why? because Rumble is right wing bullshit. Rumble is not right wing bullshit. Rumble is censorship free. So stuff that yeah, you can't talk about on I, YouTube. I, I Mike, I know unfortunately what perspective you're coming from. It's stuff that you can't have. But but unfortunately, so often, and I agree. I am a person who is left leaning who wants free speech to and places like Rumble to exist for liberals. But unfortunately, it's just where a lot of conservatives end up going and posting fucking racist and misogynist and and and, and uh, anti choice shit. Like, unfortunately, that's just who ends up there. I, I, I don't disagree with you that perhaps um, the like when it originated, that was the intention. But this is what happens with a lot of these spaces. They become uh, conservative, like, hangouts because because the other spaces that we have created are so left leaning. And that's why I think everything should just be allowed everywhere. I'm just I, don't... I know the intention of Rumble, but that's not how it's ended up, unfortunately. Right, but to say that something is invalid because it has views on Rumble is very close-minded. No, no, no. I said it makes me hesitant because, it, it to me, there's an extreme conservative bias. And also, the kinds of people who are hanging out on Rumble are not the people who are going to help this case, right? Like, they're not, like, a bunch of racists getting together and being like, Derek Chauvin was, uh, you know, unfairly given 22 and a half years in prison. Like, that's not what you want. You you want people such as myself who fucking marched for George Floyd uh, and, you know, because of his death to, to go back and, and go, fuck, maybe I was pre presented this information in the wrong way. Maybe there's a lot of shit that I didn't see. And now I'm fucking pissed about that. That I was fed horseshit. That's what I want. That's what I want to happen. Yeah, but would that I don't be want, allowed on YouTube? I don't want the same people who were racist to begin with to go, see, I, I knew that guy was trouble. Like, that's not going to be helpful. That's not going to be helpful. If it's the truth. Okay, but yeah, okay, but the thing is, they didn't think it was the truth because they thought it was the truth. They thought it, they thought this was so because they're racist against black people. They didn't look into it because of the truth. If they looked into it and and, and saw like, oh, this was an okayed um, uh, position to restrain someone in. Oh, there was fentanyl in his system. That's a completely different conversation. But unfortunately, you see these people having conversations on the lines and those, those aren't the points that they're bringing to the table. They're fucking loosely using the N-word still like it's goddamn fucking 1952 in here. And it's despicable. Okay, back to the article. Still, according to Colin... There has been no coverage of the documentary by legacy media outlets, with the exception of Fox Nation, which is planning to stream it. Again, not helpful. Uh, perhaps the biggest reason why I want it, because now the 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 the, the it's just like a, an echo chamber on the right, which is like what we we want everyone to be getting information and the truth, not these skewed perspectives. Um, perhaps the biggest uh, reason why I wanted to make this documentary, Che told me. 
was to let people reckon with the truth. He went on, I think far too few of us were given the chance to see all of the evidence and think independently and dare I say rationally and openly about the truth in this case. Um, Even if Chauvin's hold was a maneuver trained and sanctioned by the Minneapolis police, the documentary uh, goes on to make a second equally important claim. The hold may not have led to the death of George Floyd. And again, if uh, you're watching this uh, like live or whatever and this goes off, the remainder will be on YouTube and on all the audio versions of uh, of the show because they just have to go to the next show. But I'm, I'm finishing this article um, one week after Floyd died. Mainstream media outlets settled on the narrative that asphyxiation was the cause of death based on two autopsies, one by the county pathologist and one commissioned by Floyd's family. And this is, again, it's interesting because even we know with, um, uh, God, his name is slipping from me. What's the, the gentleman from Friends who just died? Matthew Perry? Is that right? Matthew Perry? Yes, Matthew Perry. Okay, so uh, even with that, like it, it took a long time to, I don't know, like, where how what the rate of these autopsies is but like they'll release one autopsy and then like months later or weeks later another autopsy will come out and they'll be like jk that was the wrong cause of death so i, I don't know um but there was only one complete documented autopsy of George Floyd performed by Hennepin County Medical Examiner Dr. Andrew Baker after about 12 hours after Floyd died. That autopsy found no evidence of asphyxia. In fact, it found no life-threatening injuries whatsoever. What it did find was the, that Floyd died of cardiopulmonary arrest. His heart and lungs stopped working during law enforcement subdual restraint and neck compression. The autopsy's toxicology report also stated that Floyd had a potentially lethal dose of fentanyl in his blood, um, along with small amounts of methamphetamine and morphine. And finally, the autopsy report concluded that Floyd had serious pre-existing conditions, including arteriosclerotic uh, heart disease described as multifocal and severe hypertensive heart disease and cardio. Uh, Megali, which is an enlarged heart. The second so-called autopsy paid for by Floyd's family was hardly of equal significance. Unlike Dr. Baker's report, it was both incomplete and undocumented. Incomplete because the pathologist did not have access to Floyd's toxicology report, his tissue samples, and even some of his organs. Che alleges that they did not have access to Floyd's body at all, making it more of a review than an actual autopsy. And this is interesting because I wonder if autopsies are similar to appraisals where we think it's kind of this standard thing where anyone who does it is going to kind of get the same result when in reality there is so much bias in uh, autopsy, I mean, in, in appraisals. So I wonder if the same thing could be true of autopsies. Again, I don't really trust anything in a space where you can pay privately to have the thing done. There's just so much bias that exists in it. I'm not saying that there was bias in this Floyd family um, uh, autopsy. I'm just saying it's a question I am posing and I would have to look more into. And undocumented because the two forensic pathologists who performed it have never published a final autopsy report despite saying that they would. One of the two examiners was Dr. Michael Baden, a celebrity pathologist with an impressive track record of getting things wrong. In the 1990s, Dr. Baden raked in 
of course, at least $100,000 testifying for the defense in O.J. Simpson's murder trial, where he advanced the outlandish multiple attacker theory. He also said on television that Ron Goldman, one of the two murder victims, remained standing for 10 minutes after being stabbed in the neck, a claim he was later forced to recant under oath. Uh, Dr. Baden's list of embarrassments does not end there. It was also he who was hired to perform an unofficial autopsy of Michael Brown, who was killed by Officer Darren Wilson in 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri, though the body had already been washed and embalmed by the time he got to it. Dr. Baden declared that there was no evidence of a struggle between Brown and Officer Wilson, a claim that was decisively refuted by the official autopsy, as well as by Attorney General Eric Holder's detailed report. As a fitting coda to his shameful career, Dr. Baden stated in a press conference baffing, bafflingly that George Floyd was in good health. He went on to say, I wish I had the same coronary arteries that Mr. Floyd had. The official autopsy found that one of Floyd's arteries was 75% constricted and another was 90% constricted. So... On the one hand, there is a complete timely documented autopsy that found no evidence of asphyxia, which is said, which is to say no physical evidence that Chauvin's knee caused Floyd's death, while also documenting severe underlying disease and a potentially lethal dose of fentanyl. And on the other hand, there is an incomplete undocumented autopsy conducted in part by a forensic examiner with a long history of incompetence and opportunism. Assessing the forensic evidence alone, I would not find it unreasonable to doubt that Chauvin caused Floyd's death. The counter argument, however, is that forensic evidence is not everything. There is also the video itself. Chauvin clearly has his knee on Floyd's neck for some amount of time, and in that time, Floyd desperately claims that he cannot breathe. On its face, it would appear that the former caused the latter. However, Floyd complained of shortness of breath before Chauvin's knee was on his neck. At 8.17 p.m., before Chauvin had arrived at the scene, Floyd said, "'When I start breathing, it's gonna go off on me, man.'" One minute later, as he resists efforts to put him back in, uh, put him in the back of the squad car, he yells, I can't choke. I can't breathe. So while it is not unreasonable to think that Chauvin's knee was the cause of Floyd's labored breathing, it's also not unreasonable to think that his labored breathing was caused by other factors. For instance, the stress of the arrest in general, the fentanyl in his system, his pre-existing health conditions or some combination of the three. In short, there are two major justifications to reasonably doubt Chauvin's felony murder charge, whether he caused Floyd's death and whether he committed a felony. As a result, I believe that Chauvin should not have been convicted of murder. Still, you can make the case that Chauvin departed from his training by failing to roll Floyd onto his side into what the MPD use of force manual calls the side recovery position. And that is talked about on um, the slides above once he lost consciousness. But that error, because they talk about how often um, this restraining method can uh, affect your heart. But that error may or may not have amounted to a crime and surely would not have amounted to felony murder. Whether or not you agree that Chauvin was guilty, it would be hard for a reasonable person to conclude that he received a fair trial by an impartial jury. For one thing, months after the verdict, the New York Times revealed that one juror had a Black Lives Matter sign displayed prominently in the window of their home. Think of this in reverse. If Chauvin were exonerated and a jury member was found to have a Blue Lives Matter sign in the window of their home, wouldn't we be right to worry about jury bias? Meanwhile, several seated juries voiced their fears about what might happen happened to them when their names became public. According to Chauvin's appeal brief, juror number 92 said, what would happen to me 
if I was a juror after, if somebody found out or that was my main concern, a potential juror, number 60, is quoted saying that he would have a hard time being impartial because of concern for the safety of my family. He continued, if the outcome were to go a certain way and the general public didn't like that, it would cause a definite concern from me regarding our family. And think about that. I wanted you to think about that in the context of think of how scared you have probably been in the past five to 10 years to perhaps uh, voice a political opinion on social media that goes against that of your peers, your friends, your colleagues, the people that you associate with. Think of how scary that was for you and how maybe perhaps you even voice something different from what you actually believed in your heart uh, because of you didn't want to deal with the social ramifications, right? I'm not saying this is true of all of you. I'm saying perhaps I know many people behind closed doors. This is certainly true for, um, and I'm not saying that's how you feel felt about this particular case, but um, that certainly uh, is heightened when you are on the actual jury, right? You know this societal pressure to go along with the thing that the in quotes good people think is true. You know the 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 like the outcome that we want. Um, Police officer, bad person of color. Good. Again, I'm not I, I have not done enough research on this. I just think th these are the, the questions that you should be asking yourself constantly. Anytime you read an article, um, the city of Minneapolis suffered one of the most destructive riots in American history, amounting to half a billion dollars in damage in the days after Floyd's death. Everyone involved in Chauvin's trial knew that if he was acquitted, their city would likely burn once again. Even worse, they knew that if their names became associated with his acquittal, then their lives might be forever changed for the worse. Dr. Baker, who conducted the official autopsy, said that he received hundreds of phone calls, some harassing and threatening, as he was working on his final autopsy report, a deposition transcript from an unrelated lawsuit filed by Hennepin County Principal Attorney Amy Sweezy Tam. Barino against her boss, Mike Freeman, revealed that Dr. Baker, just hours after performing the autopsy on Floyd, asked her, Amy, what happens when the actual evidence doesn't match up with the public narrative that everyone's already decided on? He goes on, this is the kind of case that ends careers. Nevertheless, Dr. Baker released his autopsy report soon after and has said that the pressure did not influence his findings in any way. If Chauvin survives prison, he will not be released until 2013. 38. His appeal was rejected by Minnesota's appellate court as well as the U.S. Supreme Court. With respect to his federal charges, Chauvin waived his right to appeal as part of a plea deal. As a result, his last resort, a long shot, would be to claim ineffective assistance of counsel. In the meantime, it is up to American society to review the facts with cooler heads than prevailed in 2020 and 2021 and consider the possibility that Chauvin was not a murderer, but a scapegoat. Um, so I thought that, again, I just thought that was a really interesting article. Um, I don't always agree with Coleman Hughes, but I think he always... Um, uh, does a lot of research and comes ready with with facts and backup um, and having done the work uh, that uh, in his reporting to conversations and to arguments that he presents, um, as is the kind of the standard on the FP.com. Uh, again, whether or not you agree with the writer, a lot of times you're like, wow, at least they presented perspectives and facts and seem to fact check in a way that I just don't see um, other places doing. Um, 
And uh, that's basically our show. In closing, I just wanted to give a shout out to South Korea. They did in the past week uh, ban dog meat officially, which has been a conversation for a long time. Uh, it will not go fully into effect until I believe 2027. Um, but it's kind of an outdated practice and people, they were putting pressure on them for a long time. Uh, but it will, you know, breeding, killing and selling of dogs for their meat um, will be banned in the country where it has fallen out of favor. Uh, hundreds of thousands of the animal were still being bred for human consumption uh, regularly. That's something I talk about a lot on my Instagram stories. Uh, again, ethically, I actually don't believe that it's any worse to like eat a dog than any other um, animal, which is another conversation that you see people have having in countries where um, mostly Asian countries where it is um, more uh, or it is socially acceptable uh, to consume dog. Uh, but again, uh, another conversation for another day conversations we'll keep having on this show. If you want to see me live, um, Here's where to do so. The Funny for Fido charity event is happening on Thursday, January 25th at the Cutting Room here in New York City. Uh, again, those are expensive tickets, but all the profits will be going to Dog Rescue and 75% of your ticket cost is tax deductible. If you're in a place where you can spend, um, you know, 200 bucks for a ticket, it's an, an incredible lineup. Colin Quinn, me, Bobby Kelly, Yamanika Saunders, Caitlin Cook, Usama Siddiqui, and Justin Silver. If not, Totally get it. And it's not a price point for everybody. Uh, moving forward, February 1st, Christina and I are continuing our residency at the MasterCard Midnight Theater. It'll be Guys We Fucked Live. Such a fun show. These shows have been phenomenal. Definitely get a ticket. Those are already selling quite quickly. Los Angeles, Valentine's Day, February 14th. Christina and I are doing Guys We Fucked Live at the Comedy Store in the main room. That is already uh, more than half sold out, so do not wait. That's a month away. If you want to be with us on Valentine's Day, definitely get a ticket now. Bring a friend. Make plans with your girls. Tell your boyfriend that you're choosing what you're doing uh, that night and that it's going to be going to the Guys We Fuck show instead of going to an overpriced, weird, stuffy restaurant. Um, and then Washington, D.C., I am headlining the D.C. Comedy Law for five shows February 29th through March 2nd with the incredible Chloe LeBranch featuring. So excited for that. Those tickets have been sale on sale for a while, so definitely grab those now that it's 2024 if you're interested in coming as those are going fast. Please follow me on all social media at Philanthropy Gal. You can follow Without a Country uh, podcast at Without a Country on Instagram. And as always, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Without a Country podcast. Uh, thank you so much. Um, if you have anything you want to share with me, you can send it to Without a Country podcast at gmail.com. Uh, I love doing this show for uh, for you and thank you for all your contributions. I really love reading what you guys uh, share with me and things that you're interested in. And thank you for taking an active interest and participation in the world in which you live. The truth is out there. Have a great day. Bye.